0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your holy word. It is a light to our path. It is the joy and rejoicing of our heart. It nourishes our soul, it tells us of you. It gives us promise after promise so that we might live in hope. And now Lord, break the bread of life to me, to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as you're doing that, let me just simply say that the first verse is very instructive and somewhat startling, where Paul says, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. And I asked myself the question, whoever said it was? Well, I think that has to be answered. Those jealous Jews who pursued Paul from Philippi all the way to Thessalonica and then even to Berea and forced him to flee to the south of Greece to the metropolitan city of Athens. His detractors had made it known as far as they could that the Apostle Paul's mission to Thessalonica was a failure. Paul was a cheap peddler. (laughs) He was selling his religious wares with dubious motives. His goal was to gain money. Perhaps his goal was to trick people so he'd have a great following, or maybe even worse than that, some immoral motive where he, like other religious leaders, could use the guise of religion to simply feed their wicked sexual appetites. Maybe Paul was just in it for the money, and he wanted to build up his own personal wealth. That's what the accusers said. And they said, Paul, you didn't accomplish anything you wanted to do. Well, we ran you out of town. You were here a mere three, maybe four weeks, and you ran. Instead of standing your ground, you ran. Paul, your mission was a failure. And you know, for a time, Paul was afraid that that might might have been true. Not the motives that were charged to him. But in chapter 3, and I think it's verse 5, he said, I sent Timothy to check out to see how you were doing, lest my labor for you had been fruitless, or in vain. The same Greek word that we have translated here in verse 1, failure. Which is a word that means devoid of any truth or impact. Empty, useless. But Paul heard from Timothy that things were going well in Thessalonica, and he was encouraged. He was encouraged to say, no, our work among you was not a failure. God accomplished his purpose. And remember in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians Paul is looking back at his ministry in that city and in the last two chapters he's kind of giving a vision for that church and that city as they go forward. So the first three chapters is reflection or review and then the next two chapters he's laying down hope and anticipation or even a brighter future in tomorrow. Look at verse 2. Paul said, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God we dared to tell his gospel in spite of strong opposition. What do you do when someone hammers you and accuses you of being a failure? Do you quit or do you go on? What happens when you meet the smallest amount of resistance? Do you fight or do you surrender? Failure is actually our inability to fight on in faith. Failure is the loss of courage when we should continue. Paul wasn't a failure. He kept going forward. If you were to go back to Acts 16 and Acts 17, you could read the history about what happened when Paul went to Macedonia. Let me just review a few of the highlights. He finally got onto European soil and went to the chief city, the first leading city, Philippi. And things were going well in ministry. People were being saved. But that caused an uproar in the city. In fact, we are told that the crowd got together in the marketplace, the Agora, and they pulled Paul and his missionary team before the magistrates in that marketplace. And according to Acts 16 and verse 22, the crowd attacked them, and they were stripped by the magistrates in public view and beaten, whipped, severely flogged, chained, and put into prison. That's what Paul meant in verse 2 when he said, We suffered and we were insulted, humiliated in Philippi. But remember while they were in prison there was an earthquake? And God allowed the apostle Paul and Silas to win the jailer to Christ. And they gained their freedom. And with wounds still sore and body still bruised and maybe even bones broken, they made their way west a hundred miles to preach the gospel in Thessalonica because it says in verse 2, with the help of God, we dared to preach his gospel in the midst of opposition. Knowing that they might receive some of the same, they still went to Thessalonica. And the Jews from Philippi got wind of it followed them and caused an uproar in Thessalonica. Paul had to hide, and in the darkness of night, fled, fled the city, went south to Athens alone. And the accuser said, your mission was a failure. We accomplished our purpose. We thwarted the advance of the gospel. We got rid of this heretic and his cult. That was the message that they were spreading around. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul, like all human beings, wanted to retaliate and wanted to defend himself. Now actually defending yourself is not bad. We often go to one of two extremes. We want to defend ourselves, and we become angry. We want to get back at someone and put them in their place. Or sometimes we never speak up at all. It's true when Jesus was on trial before Pilate and Pilate asked him a question, he didn't answer a word. But in another part of that same interview, when Pilate said, are you a king, Jesus went on a fairly lengthy discourse about, yes, I am a king, that's why I was born, my kingdom's not of this world, and if I would call, angels would come and rescue me. Sometimes he answered and sometimes he didn't. It's not the godly thing always to stay quiet. But it's the godly thing when you answer to speak the truth in love. And that's what Paul does. So, what we actually have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul's defense. Paul is telling what happened in his ministry and why it wasn't a failure and how they went about their work and how the accusations of their accusers are all wrong. In doing so, Paul gives us a wonderful model for ministry. Here's another pattern. We had the pattern of sharing the gospel in chapter 1, the model of a godly church, the model of a a true believer. And now we have the model of ministry in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Not just what Paul did, but what we should do with the same motives and the same methods or manner. So let's look at what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians by way of a model ministry. And he starts out with his motives in ministry. His motives. And he mentions in verse 3, as I remember our preaching of the gospel in Thessalonica, our appeal did not spring, was not motivated from error or impure thoughts. We weren't trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Let's stop our reading in the middle of verse 6. Paul goes over, first of all, some negative motives as they normally relate to men. That is, normally uh, motives that do drive men and women to do what they do. In fact, I think these motives that Paul lays out are some of the most common motives that drive us today to get ahead in this world, to seek fame and fortune, to receive pleasure, whatever it might be. And sad to say, sometimes these are the motives that drive people in the realm of religion. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. The first one is error. Paul said there was no error, and by that he meant I'm not deceived. Sometimes people in ministry are ignorant of the truth. They've believed a lie. They truly believe it, but it's a lie. They're very very passionate, but it's not true. They themselves are deceived. And that is true of many who name the name of God and speak in the name of religion in pulpits across our land and around the world, who write books and are on talk shows. They don't know the truth, and they personally are deceived. Paul said, secondly, our work didn't come from impure motives. The Greek word here actually refers to morality and could imply the fact that Paul and his team were being accused of sexual immorality. And unfortunately, that goes on in religious circles today. That's what drives a lot of people. And you read it, don't you, in the papers? All the time, so-and-so steps down from their ministry because of some indiscretion, some act of unfaithfulness. Paul said, no, that's not what drives us. Thirdly, Paul said, we weren't involved in trying to trick you. A word that speaks of the bait you put on a hook when you try to lure a fish. We are not deceiving you. So Paul said, we're not deceived, nor are we deceiving. We're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. We're not some... Snake salesman, snake oil salesman who comes into city with his, the city with his wagon and you know, puts down the side and begins to sell all the potions that will heal anything that ails you. We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to deceive you. Did you know that some people in the realm of religion, that's exactly what they're doing? They don't believe what they're saying, but their motive to gain money, a crowd, pleasure, whatever it might be, masks their activity. And they are actually seeking to deceive. If you jump down to verse 5, Paul adds the word flattery. Flattery is when you speak well of someone with the goal of trying to get them to do what you want them to do. It's like uh, the salesman who comes into the home with impure motives and suddenly he's in the most beautiful home he's ever seen. My, you must have a A gift, your interior decorating skills are amazing. And and, uh, what's the smell? I love the smell. Is that potpourri. I love that. And on he goes, you know, just praising you up one side and down the other only because he wants you to sign on the dotted line and buy his product. He doesn't care about your house and he thinks the place stinks, but he's not going to tell you that. Flattery. It was the psalmist David who said, Flattering lips are connected with a double heart. Flattery is that mask and that cover that people use who, again, are trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do, but if they boost up your ego, and boy, are we susceptible to that, each one of us. A few kind words, and we're almost ready to listen to anything. Paul said, we didn't come with flattery. You know, sometimes those who stand up behind pulpits, write books have talk shows, they're very big on flattering the religious public. I know of some preachers who focus their sermons only on that which is positive and never will acknowledge anything that is negative. Their goal is to boost people up. Yes, you can. You don't know how great you are. You can do it. And all of these self-help approaches, in the end, that are devoid of the gospel, Paul says, we're going to preach the truth, but we're going to do it in love. And then finally, there's no mask, verse 5, that covers our greed. We're not hypocrites. We're not in this to feather our own nest. Did you notice all the categories of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they're all mentioned here. And these are the things that motivate people to do what they do in the world. And even many people in the religious world, same motives. But Paul goes through each one and says, this is not what drives us. Okay, Paul, what does drive you? He goes on and mentions now some very positive motives, and these all relate to God. He says in verse 4, On the contrary, we speak as men who are approved by God. In other words, God has called us He has chosen us to be apostles. He's gifted us. He's commissioned us. We're approved of him. And we've been entrusted with the truth. We've been given a valuable gift. We've been given a rich resource that the world needs. We've been given the answer to every human dilemma. That is the answer to their greatest dilemma. How can a man be just before God? When men are sinners and God is holy. Here here it is, the gospel. By the way, this word is mentioned six times in 1 Thessalonians, four times in chapter 2. Paul talks about it being our gospel because we've embraced it and commissioned with it, entrusted with it. It's his gospel because he designed it and he accomplishes it. But it's the good news about how God loves the lost and wants to save them that there is a way for your sins to be forgiven, and it's found only in Christ and only in the cross, we as a church have been entrusted with that message. And we need to make sure that we manage that trust well. You're entrusted, you manage things that you don't own if you're a steward. And we've been entrusted with God's gospel And we need to make sure as a church we proclaim it and we live it. And thirdly, Paul said, we're not trying to please ourselves. We're not trying to please men. We're trying to please God. And he's the one who tests the hearts of men. In other words, we're not trying to gain approval. We want to be able to stand with a clear conscience in that day of judgment before the one who knows the heart. Man judges on the outward appearance. God judges on the heart. And that's what really matters. Now, there are many churches who aren't motivated like this. And I do believe we're going to get into a context in our culture where persecution is going to come to the believing church of Jesus Christ, the faithful church. I believe that there will come a time when they'll say about churches like us, they're causing an uproar in the city. And they've held positions that offend the rest of mankind. And unless you get rid of those offending positions, we'll not allow you to exist. And then the question will be, what will we do? If we're motivated to please men and gain a crowd, if our motivation comes from any one of those early false motives... We will fold and fail, but we cannot fail if we are faithful to God. We cannot fail if we're faithful to God. We may have to run out of town. (laughs) We may have to stop business, but only if God so ordains... And Paul was willing to stand. He dared to preach the gospel in spite of severe opposition, knowing what was going to happen. He laid it all on the line for the cause of Christ. Because his goal was to please not men but God. Is that your goal? I love the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. He said, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I'm going to do, I want to do all to the glory of God. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a day of judgment is coming and every one of us is going to stand before the judgment bar of God. But before that day comes, I make it my aim, my goal, to always please God. Whether I'm going to die or whether I'm going to live. That's my goal, to be pleasing to Him. Now remember, you do not we're accepted into heaven based on grace. That's the gospel. God has done all the work. We're saved by trusting him. But once we are saved, our lives are to be lived in obedience to Jesus Christ who is our Lord. And our question is this. Am I pleasing God? Think of the fact that sometimes Jesus has something like a frown of disappointment when his children are disobedient. The tear of grief and a broken heart when we go after other gods but the smile of joy when we humbly walk in his path and we have to live in such a way that the smile of God is upon us the smile of God is upon us we have to live in such a way that we're living for his approval and we understand that he's watching everything we do Years ago, there was, in a college football game, a young man who was on a team. He was not very good. Actually, this was Columbia University. This man was a third-string player, and the team was playing in the championship game on Saturday. But this young boy's father died, and the coach told him to go home. Don't worry about the game. You just take care of your family. The young man came back on a Friday to practice with the team for the Saturday game. And when he came to practice, the coach was surprised to see him and really shocked when the boy said to him, Coach, I have to play in tomorrow's game. Now, he wasn't very good. Third string. Championship game. Coach said, I can't put you in the game. But the boy pleaded incessantly until finally the coach said, all right, I'll let you receive the kickoff, but that's all I can promise. When the game time came, the boy did go in to receive the kickoff, and he almost returned it back for a touchdown. Coach was impressed, decided to leave him in. This was back when players often played offense and defense, and so this guy ended up playing defense and making more tackles than anyone else, played offense and scored a touchdown or two. I can't remember what it was. was the MVP of the game, and the team won the championship. They come into the locker room in the midst of the celebration and the coach comes up to this guy and he says, I cannot believe you played so well. He says, normally you're not very good at all. What happened to you? And the guy said, coach, did you know my dad? He said, well, no, I knew you guys were close, but no, I didn't know your dad. Then the player said this. My dad was blind for his entire life and today was the first day he got to watch me play. And i didn't play for the championship and i didn't play for the cheers of the crowd and i didn't play even to please you i played because my dad was watching me i played for his smile of approval there is no greater motive in all the world than to know god and live for his glory that's what paul says we did now how did we do it he doesn't stop with motive Let's quickly look at his manner of ministry. That was motive in ministry. Now his manner of ministry. And briefly, he gives us two pictures, two metaphors. The first we find in verse 7, that of a caring mother. The second we find in verse 11 and 12, that of an encouraging father. There are the two pictures. Now, if you didn't have a loving mother and an encouraging father it's going to be tough for you to think of God or anyone giving such compassion and tenderness to you. But think of it. They do exist. And Paul, the rough and tough apostle, who's probably gritty, you know, with the gift of a prophet, who loves to rebuke, you think, and loves to proclaim truth and loves a good fight, Paul says, when you think of us, remember that we ministered, like a caring mother. The the Greek actually implies a nursing mother who imparts from her own body life into that infant that she cherishes. Paul puts it this way. We were gentle among you, verse 7, like a mother nursing, caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, we didn't only tell you what was true, We shared our lives with you as well because you had become so dear to us. There was this wonderful bond of affection. They loved sinners. And because of that, they wanted to give them the gospel, the best gift for sinners. But not only did they give them the gospel in some indifferent way, they gave it to them with the love of a tender, caring, nursing mother. Yeah, we gave you the truth, but we're willing to die, to give up our own life so that you could live. I don't think we love sinners enough, do you? I think sometimes we're so complacent. Paul said you became dear to us, so in spite of severe opposition, we are really willing to preach the gospel and to share our lives, put our lives on the line. Verse 9, we toiled with hardship. We worked night and day. Which, by the way, is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean all through the night. It means we started in the morning when it was dark and we ended at night when it was dark. It was a long day. And we did that so that we would not be a burden to anyone. So we could share the gospel. So that there would be no question about our motives. Paul says, in fact, in verse 10... God is our witness and so are you, how we acted in a holy way that has reference to obedience to God's truth. And a righteous way that speaks about righteous morality, justice, doing what is right before men. And blameless covers both God and man. We were holy and righteous and blameless among you who believed. Like a caring mother, loving you so much we gave you our lives. That is gospel ministry. But not just that, look at verse 11. You know that we dealt with each one of you, not just the masses, but individually, just like a father deals with his own individual children. And we did it in tenderness, encouraging, comforting, and urging you, challenging you, instructing you, exhorting you to walk a life worthy of God, to live a life worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul says we we played that role of a father who encourages and a mother who cares until you were able to stand on your own two feet. By the way, they did this in three weeks. What ministry? And Paul lays down for us this perfect pattern. Have the right motive and have the right approach, the right manner. Do it out of love, but speak the truth. Do it tenderly. Do it wholeheartedly. For God's work in God's way always succeeds. Now, doing ministry like this ends in a great way. Look at the end of the chapter. Paul says, When Jesus comes again, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? It's you, you Thessalonians. It's you people that we were blessed to lead to Jesus Christ. In other words, there's nothing that's going to bring more joy in life than if you can have an impact on someone hearing the gospel and believing the gospel and growing in the gospel. To know Christ, to believe in Christ, to become like Christ. There's no greater joy in all the world because the world is passing away. And all the lusts that are involved in it. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of the That's all going to be gone. Gain it all, you lose it all. But if you invest your lives with the gospel in human beings, in the end, they will be your crown. And they will be your joy. And Paul's all excited about doing the ministry God's way. Doing ministry God's way with the proper motive always succeeds <laughs> so what does this mean there was one time a pastor who was preaching a sermon and he decided to give a vivid demonstration of the sermon and so on the platform on the on the podium he had four jars and four worms one in each jar one jar was filled with alcohol put a worm in that jar Second jar was filled with cigarette smoke. Put a worm in that jar. Third jar was filled with chocolate syrup. Put a worm in that jar. And the fourth jar was filled with rich soil. Put a worm in that jar. Now I think it was a really dumb thing to do because I think no one heard what he said the whole sermon as they watched what was happening to the worms. But as was promised, the pastor gave a report at the end. uh, The worm in the alcohol died. The worm in the cigarette smoke jar died. The worm in the chocolate syrup died, sadly. (laughs) The worm in the good soil lived. And the pastor said, okay, congregation, what does this mean? Someone raised their hand and said, well, as long as you drink, smoke and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Pastor was going for something else. (laughs) And often when we preach, you may not know what we're going after if we don't make it clear. So at the end of the sermon, we say, All right, what does that mean? You say, Well, it means that Paul was really a good preacher. means that Paul had the right motives and he did ministry in the right way and that God blessed him. And in the end day, Paul is going to have souls that he won to Christ. And praise God for Paul's ministry. That's good. Is that all that it means? (laughs) What does it mean? It means South Church needs to minister like this, right? Pray that all ministers, including us, will minister like this. Pray that you will not manipulate people with wrong motives, but you will minister to people with the gospel of Christ in your own life. And always make it your aim in life, whatever you do, to gain the smile of your heavenly Father. God's work done in God's way will always succeed. Check your motives. Check your ministry. And look forward to presenting souls to Jesus in that last day. Heavenly Father, we know as we come to the end of our worship today that we often fail. That our lives do feel empty. But you've told us that we can confess our sin and you will restore us. You've told us that if we faithfully serve you, even though if the world thinks we're a failure, you will bless what is done. Your word will never return empty or void. It will always succeed. You've told us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in your work because our labor is never empty and in vain when it's done for you. May we check our motives May we check our ministry. And Lord, may you give to us this same commitment that Paul had so that one day we will rejoice and our crown of rejoicing will be the souls of men and women. In Jesus' name, amen.